Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, and then also, if you keep your finger there, turn over to Matthew 27. I'm going to be dealing with two uh, different uh, passages here this morning, and today, of course, is Palm Sunday, so I hope everybody had their palms examined before you came in to the church today. That's not why we call it Palm Sunday. <laughs> I don't know, bad joke Sunday. That's every day, every Sunday for me is bad joke Sunday, so... Now, Palm Sunday, we call Palm Sunday, as I'm sure you know, uh, it recalls Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the crowds were uh, hailing him, embracing him to be king. But of course, as we're going to discover in our passages today, in just a few short days, about four days after that, this one who was hailed as the king is going to be sentenced to die on a Roman cross. And so if you found your place... Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll look at uh, Matthew 27, verses 15 through 23. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on on them their cloaks, and and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And then... In Matthew 27, beginning at verse 15. Now at the feast of the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd one, any one prisoner from whom they wanted. And they had then a a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so they had gathered and Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on, sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him word, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your holy infallible and an errant word that you've breathed out through the writers of Scripture. 
Thank you, Lord, for your word. Now, Father, we, we pray that you would illuminate your word to us so we could discover more of who you are and our desperate need for you and the provision that you've given us in the person of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So to kind of help set the context here about where we're at, last week, of course, we saw Jesus gather with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Apostle Peter says, because the Father had enabled him, had revealed this to him. And then Jesus, from there, he goes on. He tells them he's going to have to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the elders, and he's going to, be, he's going to suffer and die and be raised again. Of course, they didn't understand all that. So here we are now, though. This is sometime later. And we see this scene here in Matthew 21, but to, to kind of give you an understanding of, set the context of, to really um, understand what's going on, we wanna, I wanna just, want you to just to, to imagine yourself for a moment, to think of yourself, to try as much as you can, imagine that you are a, a Jewish young boy in Israel 2,000 years ago. And there you are, you go to synagogue, or a young, young girl, and you go to synagogue, and you hear these amazing stories of how God delivered your people from their slavery in Egypt, and how, they, how God brought them into the promised land, and how he established this eternal covenant with King David, that God was going to establish his throne forever. So you hear all that, but then you hear somehow, some way, that the people of God, they, they disobeyed. They disobeyed the covenant because they disobeyed the covenant. God then came down in judgment and, and removes the people from the land and sends them into exile. And the temple, which, re, which represented the very presence of God himself, is destroyed. And the people are scattered throughout the known world at that time. And so you hear the story. You're sitting on the edge of your seat. And you see here, there's no hope. What's going to happen to our people? But God happens to the people. In his steadfast love, he promises to make a new covenant. He is going to send his Messiah, the son of David, to crush the enemies of God under his feet and establish the kingdom of God on earth forever. And then God brings the people back to the land. They rebuild the temple. And so everything is like, great. We're ready to get busy now. We are the people of God. The, 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 the temple's rebuilt. The kingdom is here. Just one problem. That is, for hundreds of years since that time, foreigners occupy the land. Where's God? Where's the promises? What's going to happen? And here you are, now you grow up, you and your family, and you're under this oppressive Roman government. They have their boot, as it were, on the neck of Israel. And you and your family and all your friends and all your neighbors are restless. You yearn for the day when Messiah will finally come to get rid of these oppressors, to get rid of the Romans and establish God's kingdom forever. And you hear of this amazing man, this carpenter from Nazareth, and he's going around, 
And he's teaching as one with authority about the kingdom of God, and he's doing incredible miracles. And you go and you check it out for yourself, and you're actually there when he feeds 4,000 people. You see the miracle with your own eyes. And then you hear about how Jesus raised this man named Lazarus from the dead. And here he is now, on his way to Jerusalem, riding on a colt, and you know the prophecies. This must be the king. And you and all of the crowd there, all of your friends, this is the day we have longed for, we've yearned for, the day of salvation. The king is here, the long-awaited Messiah. He's going to overthrow the Romans and usher in shalom, peace and prosperity. And you shout, Hosanna to God in the highest. Finally, Lord, you've answered our prayers. The time is now. But in a few short days, all hopes are dashed again. As this one who was hailed as a king would be condemned to die on a Roman cross. As the crowds now shout, crucify him. You can imagine a disillusionment. Again, put yourself there, in their skin. Feel the weight of it. Who is Jesus? Well, he's not the king. He's a crucified carpenter from Nazareth. What about us? What about all these promises? God's abandoned us. We were duped. How could this be? See, they didn't understand that this was God's sovereign plan. He came to deliver us not from an oppressive, tyrannical government, but from the oppressive tyranny of sin and death through his death on the cross and bodily resurrection from the grave. And that's what we all have to, it has to get deep into our bones. And so the main idea of our passage of these two texts together is Jesus is the sovereign servant king who came to deliver those who believe from the tyranny of sin and death. The tyranny of sin and death. And we could add Satan to that. Three things to look at here. First of all, Jesus reveals his identity as the sovereign servant king. In verse 1, we see he comes to this little town, uh, Bethpage, on the Mount of Olives. And here, it's just it's helpful for us to, I got a little map here. And you see uh, somewhere on here, there it is. Now, here's the map here. Now, remember, they, Jesus, last week we saw, they were in the far, farthest northern part of Israel. So they come now, they make their way to about 100 miles north of here. They make their way down. As they're making their way down, of course, Jesus is, is performing miracles. He's teaching, things like that. And they come down to here, and you see where they're at in Bethany, and then they're going to make that run from there and come down from the Mount of Olives. Mount Olives, of course, nothing happens by accident. 
Right? They're coming to Jerusalem because it's the Passover. The Passover, they celebrate the Passover when God had delivered his people Israel from Egypt. And remember, they would slain, slain the, 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 they would, they killed the lamb and put the blood on their doorpost. So, so thousands of people are gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, there was diff, lots of different ways Jesus could have gone to get to Jerusalem, but he chose this route here because he's going to descend from the Mount of Olives because it was thought that Messiah is going to descend from the Mount of Olives. And so that's the trek there. He's going to come down and then enter into Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple things here that are kind of strange. Right away, we see what Jesus says here, associated with his, when he, when he tells his disciples, he, he tells two of them, he says, I want you to go into the village, and I want you to find a donkey and a colt, a donkey that's tied to a post, and tell anyone who asks of it that the Lord needs it. Now, it's very easy to look at these verses here and to go, well, okay, what's the big deal? Let's move on. Let's get to the really meaty stuff. But I think it's good for us to just stop and think about what's happening here. Jesus says he gives them specific details about what they're going to find in this particular town. And what comes into view here is the absolute sovereignty and divine nature of Jesus. You're going to find a donkey and a colt. And a donkey is going to be tied, not untied. And those who own the donkey are going to do exactly as the Lord says. And Luke reports that the donkey or the colt was never ridden. That's significant because that means it was fit for a king. What a coincidence. So what we see here is the precise details. Everything is exactly as Jesus said that it's going to be. And you know, some people might say, well, you know, maybe Jesus prearranged for these things to happen. Maybe he was able to, to contact somebody in that town and to say, get these two, get a donkey and a colt ready, and then I'm going to have my disciples come. And, but here's the thing, remember where Jesus was, about 80 miles, 100 miles north, and he's on his way down with his disciples, and we know they didn't have smartphones, so it wasn't like he's texting them, hey, yeah, we're on our way down. You know, make sure you get these the provisions for me here. And then they text about, oh, yeah, that sounds good, Jesus. We got it, we got it covered. No problem. <laughs> no. How does Jesus know this? How can this be? Because he's sovereign. He is the sovereign king of heaven and earth. And so Jesus, this is why this is important, Jesus doesn't come as a victim of circumstances, but as the Lord of circumstances who is directing the affairs of men on earth. From paupers to princes, from commoners to kings, all is to his own glorious end, the salvation of his people through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Remember what Jesus said last week in Matthew 16. He says that he will build his church. Not that I might build my church, I will build my church. And he can say that because he is the all-power, sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and nothing can stop him from doing what he has decreed to do. He will build his church. And then we see his sovereignty is also seen with this donkey. Why, why the donkey? Well, Matthew points out this was to fulfill prophecy about the Messiah. And as you read through Matthew's gospel, you're going to see this phrase a lot. 
This was done to fulfill in fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew was written specifically to Jewish people. So this has, he, he's rooting everything that happens to Jesus in prophecy. This is all done in fulfillment. So people are now are cued in. But understand what prophecy is. Prophecy is about God telling you this is what's going to happen. And he can do that not because he has a crystal ball and can look into the future and go, oh, I see what's going to happen there. I like that plan. I think we'll go with that plan. No, he knows the future because he has ordained the future. He has decreed what's going to take place in the future. And all things work according to the counsel of his will. He's accomplishing his purposes. And the specific prophecy here is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And Matthew adds something here from Isaiah 62, verse 11. But the specific prophecy is Zechariah 9, 9. Listen to what Zechariah says. It's quoted here in part. Behold, your king is coming to you. Key word, humble and mounted on a donkey, a beast of burden. And so all of this is happening not by chance. God is directing the affairs of men for his glory. Now, there's a couple of applications I want to point us to here and to why this is important. Why belabor these things? Well, first of all, it's very important for us because it gives us a sense of comfort, or at least it should. This universe is not out of control. We see things happening on earth and we think, man, things are just out of control. No, God is in control. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And for believers, you know that not only is his eternal plan of redemption that he's ordained from before time began and is working perfectly in and through, in time through the person of his son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know that every single detail of your life is in the care of your sovereign king. Nothing comes into our lives apart from the sovereign care of our king. And as Paul tells us, he works all things to the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. And the ultimate good that's in view there, Paul will go on to say, is our conformity to Christ. So we have comfort, we have assurance. Jesus is not a passive bystander in the drama of history. This is another thing for us to take hold of. See, the way we often conceive of this is that, you know, so what happened was, so God created us to glorify and enjoy him forever. And then what happened was, well, sin came into the world, and oh, that kind of threw God's plan off a little bit. So now God has to scramble and make a plan. And so he makes this plan. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send Jesus into the world, and Jesus is going to die for sinners and then make a way for salvation. And then Jesus is going to kind of cross his fingers and hope that people accept him. Because if they don't accept him, well, then I guess I can't build my church. You see, that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God has ordained these things to happen. He's chosen the people for himself in Christ by his grace alone before the foundation of the world. And Christ has come to perfectly accomplish their redemption on the cross, and every single person for whom he has died for on the cross shall be saved. Why? Because there's power in the blood. Jesus never fails to save every single person for whom he was sent to save, which is all those that were given to him by the Father before time even began. 
perfect salvation, perfect Savior, perfect accomplishment, which is perfectly applied to us by the Holy Spirit. The sovereignty of Jesus, the sovereignty of the Lord in the world and in his salvation. And Jesus is also making clear he's a humble servant. He doesn't come riding in on a war horse. As Brother Timothy made allusion to in his prayer, that's going to come later (laughs) at the end of time. But here he comes in riding a lowly beast of burden, which was customary, by the way, for kings on a mission of peace. And so what we see here again is the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, 800 years before Jesus is, is writing, he prophesies of a time when the Messiah is going to be the Prince of Peace. And that Prince of Peace is going to come. Why he's called the Prince of Peace is because he's going to give us peace with God. Because we in our sin are enemies of God. We're alienated from God. But this Messiah is going to come as the Prince of Peace. And this Prince of Peace is going to be the suffering servant, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 53. And so we quoted that passage in our Confession of Sin, where it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Not might be healed, but we are healed. That is, in the deepest recesses of our being. We are reconciled to God now. We are new new creations in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, the dominion of sin in Christ. We've been healed. So Jesus doesn't come then as a hip revolutionary. He doesn't come as those uh, liberation theologians say, to, to, to get rid of all the oppressive systems that are out there. He comes to do away with the ultimate oppression that we face, which is the oppression of sin and death and Satan. That's what he comes to do. And he comes as the suffering servant to fulfill God's word. I love what Ligon Duncan says here, and we have the quote. He says, quote, Jesus is saying, because he comes in fulfillment of God's word. I'm going to live by the book, minister by the book, suffer by the book, die by the book, be resurrected from the dead by the book. Jesus is conducting his life and his ministry strictly in accordance with the word of God. Every last detail, Jesus is submitted to the word. And that raises a question for us as a point of application. What about us? Do we have the same concern? Are we people of the book? Have we submitted ourselves to the book? Or do we come to the book and we read the book and we go, well, that doesn't make sense, so I don't want to do that. Or I have my own opinions of things. I see what the word says here, but it doesn't fit my preconceptions, my my presuppositions, and so I'm not going to change my presuppositions because I know that those are true. So we're not going to have our our lofty opinions changed for anybody because that's infallible and inerrant, not God's word. Or we look at what's going on in the culture and the culture says, well, this is what's right and what's wrong, and so you need to change what you believe about those things. 
And far too often, many of us Christians are like, oh, okay, that sounds good. Go yeah, because if you don't change those things, then you know there's something wrong with you. You're morally deficient. And so we get intimidated and fearful. So we we don't want to submit to what God's word. But this is what Jesus does. Living by the book. As a church, this is what we have to do. Live and minister by the book. And so Jesus then is the sovereign, the sovereign servant king, and the crowd doesn't understand all the implications of that. And that takes us to the second point. Jesus is received as a conquering king. Now, by riding on a donkey, the crowd gets what Jesus is doing. They know their Bible's pretty good, I guess. They know the prophecies. They know what's going on. And Jesus here, understand what Jesus is doing. All throughout the Gospels up to this point, Jesus has been telling his disciples and others, don't tell anybody who I am. He hasn't, he hasn't revealed himself as the Christ. Now what Jesus is doing is he is publicly, openly declaring that, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. I am the King. And it's no coincidence that it's Passover week, as I mentioned before commemorating the deliverance from Egypt. And so the, the crowd is thinking, man, we're here for Passover, which commemorates the deliverance of God's people in Egypt from, their, from the oppression and the slavery in Egypt. And here's Jesus. Jesus is Messiah. He's king. He's going to deliver us from the Roman oppressors. Salvation is here, just like it was back for our people back in Egypt. Of course, they don't understand the full implications of this. But here's a question. What made them think that this carpenter from Nazareth, of all places, could be Messiah? Because anybody could ride in, could do this. Yeah, I'm the king. He, he's on his little cult. By the way, you know, these cults are small. People say, you know, it's, it's kind of... It looks kind of funny. You got this guy on this little colt and his feet are kind of, you have to lift your feet up to kind of not have him drag on the ground and stuff. Anybody could have done that. What made the people think that Jesus was Messiah? Well, Luke's gospel tells us it's because of the, the mighty works that they had seen. Everybody knew there was something different about Jesus. The things that he said, the things that he did, nobody does these things. Nobody tells a paralytic to, to get up and take your mat, and I tell you, your sins are forgiven. What blasphemy if that's not true? Making himself out to be God, but then demonstrating that he is God by raising up a paralytic. That's just one of many miracles. Cleansing the leper. Who does that? Raising the dead. Who does that? So they know. They saw him heal the sick. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. So if Jesus can do those things, surely he can destroy the Romans. That's child's play. And remember the Romans, like this is the most powerful army on the face of the planet. Feared. How's this one man going to take care of the Roman legions? Well, if he can raise the dead and cast out demons... And calm the storm. 
This is child's play. And so this Jesus, who has displayed such amazing power over disease and demons and even death itself, is the son of David, ready to conquer enemy, the enemies of Israel. And what do they do? They roll out the red carpet. I don't see a red carpet in the text. What do you mean? <laughs> well, they take their cloaks, right? Basically, they take the shirt off their back and they put it there in front of, basically rolling out the red carpet. They take these palm branches. And these palm branches, by the way, it represented, when they would take these palm branches, whenever somebody won a war, they would wave the palm branches as victory. We've won the war! So that's what they're saying. They're rolling out the red carpet. Jesus, they're putting their cloaks on the ground. They're taking these palm branches. They're putting them on the ground, and they're waving the palm branches, and they're shouting out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed to see who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We've won the war. Even though it hasn't even been fought yet, that's how confident they were. And they're quoting this. Hosanna from 118, Psalm 118, 24, verses 24 and 25. What they're saying is that the kingdom of David, it's right now. It's here. It's now. Right there in the person of Jesus. And in the shout of Hosanna, what they're saying is, they're saying, save, Lord. Deliver us from our enemies. And as, Isaiah, as Psalm 118 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day of salvation. And here's what we need to understand, brothers and sisters. They were right. They just didn't have a full, accurate understanding of what they were saying. Jesus is the King of Israel. He is the, he, he is the Son of David. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And the kingdom of David had indeed come in the person of Jesus, and he was going to deliver Israel from their enemies. But the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate in his first coming is a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly political kingdom. And the enemies that Jesus came to deliver the people from was the greatest enemies that we face of sin and death and Satan. And that's what Passover is all about. In Passover, when God delivers the Israelites, they take the blood of the Lamb, they put it on the doorpost. And that's what we have here now. Jesus, the true Lamb of God, riding on the colt, going into Jerusalem to offer up his life as a sacrifice so that his blood would be applied to our lives. And everybody who has the blood applied to them, the angel of death, eternal death, will pass over them. So Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail. Remember that? And Jesus now begins that by launching a direct assault on the gates of hell by entering Jerusalem of all places that had been overrun by the forces of darkness, declaring that he is the true king, not merely of Jerusalem, but of the entire cosmos. He rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, but the war that he came to fight and win would be waged in a totally unexpected way. 
Instead of conquering the Romans, he would willingly lay down his life and be crucified and killed by the Romans, yet he would rise triumphantly, bodily, from the dead to deliver us from our spiritual bondage. I love here what you see is the stark contrast between how the world thinks of deliverance, how the world thinks of oppression, how the world thinks of kingly things, and how our Lord thinks of those things. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says, and I wish I could say it in the same Scottish accent because it would sound so nice if I could, but I won't even try. He says this, quote, How stark the contrast between Roman glory and Jesus' humility must have seemed. Yet we know that his kingdom was established while the glory that was Rome disappeared into oblivion. Where is the Roman Empire now? Gone. What Jesus did in Jerusalem establish a kingdom which would outlast all the kingdoms of this world and break in pieces every man-centered kingdom which sets itself against it. Jesus had come to take his throne but had committed himself to begin his reign from a cross. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. So many points of application. You know, our culture is always looking for a Messiah. Everybody is. Someone or something to bring shalom, to bring flourishing. And the two biggest messiahs that we have in our culture are education and politics. I love what one article I read, the author said this. He says, quote, in an imperfect society, redemption is won through collective self-improvement. That's what it's about. So we just need to educate people more and have the, the right political leader and party so they can lead us to the promised land of a, quote, more perfect union. That's what it's about. Now, don't get me wrong, those things are important, but they don't address the heart of the problem, which is our sinful hearts. We need more than self-improvement. We need redemption. We need transformation. And then, for our own lives, we think individually here. Sometimes we think that Jesus came to conquer our problems and put us on easy street. Of course, it doesn't take you very long after you come to Christ, you realize, well, that wasn't true. <laughs> it only got worse. <laughs> but that's what we do sometimes. And what happens is so things happen in our lives and we get mad, we, we question God, where is God? We you know, whatever the case might be. We pray for things and they don't happen and we begin to wonder, like, well, I said my prayer, Jesus. I said the prayer of faith. How come this didn't happen? I had, I had faith more than a mustard seed and that still didn't happen. So it's easy. You know, we always, often think of this in terms of the prosperity gospel. Well, it's only those people who believe in the prosperity gospel, which is so obviously wrong, but we don't believe that. Oh, yes, we do, just in a different way. And we bear it out in so many different ways when we murmur against God. The ultimate thing that Jesus has done for us is that he set us free from the penalty and power of sin. And that's the ultimate felt need that every single person on the face of this planet has. 
We talk about mercy ministry. Should never do any ministry apart from the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. Feed all the bellies you want. But if they don't hear the gospel, and they don't come to terms with who Christ is, they'll go to hell with a full belly. Of course, the belly won't remain full for very long, will it? Four hours, maybe. We need to get people the gospel. That's the most important thing. And when you come to faith in Christ, your circumstances likely won't change. You'll likely be in the very same place you always were. Same job, same everything. Same things that got on your nerves, same things that brought you down. The difference is, is that now you have Christ, or Christ has you. And he enables you now to deal with those things in a way you never could before. He enables, remember, this is what we learned in Philippians. He enables us to have contentment despite the circumstances. And so Jesus is praised as a conqueror king, and the whole city, we're told in verse 10, was stirred. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody was pro-Jesus. Some of the stirring is that there's people there. Remember, this is the Pharisees' turf. The Pharisees, the ones that Jesus said, who are the father of the devil. And that Pilate's going to say they envy Jesus. That's why they want him put to death. No, everybody in Jerusalem was not very thrilled that Jesus was there. There was a stir. Some people were like, Curious, others were like very deeply opposed to him. And then, of course, they asked, well, who is this? And the crowds answered, well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And here the idea is we think that the prophet Moses said that there was going to be a prophet greater than him that would come. This is the prophet, the Messiah. But the crowd here adds the little thing here, from Nazareth and Galilee. This is our guy. <laughs> this is the one. Kind of sticking it to him a little bit. So the question of Jesus' identity takes center stage. The crowd acknowledged Jesus as the true prophet, priest, and king. But here's the thing. They were blinded, blinded before God to their desperate need of salvation. Blinded to his blinding holiness and blinding to the, to the depravity that gripped their hearts and minds. They wanted a Savior on their own terms, one who would take away their problems, but not one who would change them or make demands of them. And doesn't that describe so many of us? Even when we become Christians, we want a Savior on our own terms. And just a few days later, their hopes are going to come crashing down in a dramatic way. That takes us to our third point. Jesus is rejected and becomes a crucified king. Matthew chapter 27, verses 23, 15 through 23. Jesus, now he's entered the temple and days go by. He's, he's doing a lot of damage <laughs> during these days. He's gone into the temple. He's turned, overturned tables. My house is a house of prayer. He's bringing judgment upon the, the, the Pharisees, the blind guides doing all these things, and finally he's betrayed. We we know the story. Betrayed with a kiss by one of his friends. And here he is, he's brought the trial before Pilate, and you see what happens. They bring out to him this thieving, murdering, insurrectionist Barabbas. Okay, people, who do you want now? Do you want Christ? Do you want Jesus? Or do you want this thieving, murderous insurrectionists. 
Now, they liked the idea of the insurrectionists, didn't they? Because they liked the idea of going back to the previous point of our salvation is found in political things, in getting rid of these oppressive systems. So they were more than happy at this point to say, yeah, give us Barabbas. And so that's what happens. Pilate caves in, releases Barabbas, and so Jesus is handed over to be flogged and crucified. But here's the key point. The innocent one, Jesus, takes the place of the guilty one. Jesus wasn't guilty of anything. Pilate said as much. Well, we all know he was, but Pilate also acknowledges that. This is a righteous man. The innocent, righteous one is punished in place of the unrighteous, wicked one. And the symbolism here shouldn't be missed, brothers and sisters. And it's this. You and I are Barabbas. Because we all rebelled against our king. And out of his amazing love and grace, he takes my place and your place. Because we were in the crowd shouting, we don't want Jesus. We want the murderer. We want the insurrectionist. Because that's us. We want ourselves. He takes our place on the cross to endure the eternal punishment, the outer darkness that we deserve. And next week we're going to see how this crucified king is indeed a conquering king. As he rises up bodily and conquers death, hell, and the grave in our sin. So that all who trust in him could have eternal life. You can imagine, again, the disillusionment of the people there when this happens, the people who, who still were in favor of Jesus. Because they had false expectations. Jesus doesn't give us the good that we think we need, but the good that we actually need. If Jesus had conquered the Romans, they would still be dead in their trespasses and sins. The victory might be sweet for a time, maybe a victory parade, but they would still be them, sinners in need of salvation and transformation. I love this columnist, which she says here, Cynthia Heimel. She talks about how, you know, people think, if I just get this, if I just get, she's talking about actors and they become famous, if I just get famous, my life will be great. Look what she says here. She says, quote, the giant thing that they were striving for that was going to make their lives bearable and give them happiness happened. And the next day they woke up and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. That's us without Jesus. Constantly looking for something to give us the satisfaction and the hope and the peace and the love that we crave. We wake up the next day. Now what? 
like the crowd, we might get excited about Jesus and roll out the red carpet. We might shout, Hosanna, but then we see that the king didn't come to give us our best life now and deliver us from all of our problems. He came to go to the cross to deal with my greatest felt need that a wretch like me could be saved by his grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And now he wants me to do what? Take up my cross. Follow him. Renounce myself. Love God, love my neighbor. To follow my king, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame for the sake of others. And so, King Jesus, the sovereign servant king, the suffering king, the crucified king, calls us to receive and to follow him on his terms, not ours. His terms are clear. By his grace alone, turn from your sins. Embrace him. If you never have, today is indeed the day of salvation. That salvation was won by Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago, and it's offered to you today. You can have yourself as king or Jesus. Which one are you going to choose? If you choose yourself, it's not going to end well. And if you are a believer today, the glorious truth of the gospel is that King Jesus has made a triumphal entry into the hearts of his people. Hosanna in the highest. By his grace, he sovereignly brought you to himself by his spirit. He's given you the gifts of saving faith and repentance, and he's at work in us now to love him to live in a manner worthy of him. So brothers and sisters, let us go forth today and do just that. Rejoicing as the crowds did that day, Hosanna in the highest, because he has indeed accomplished our salvation through his death on the cross and bodily resurrection. And he's at work in us now to destroy the power of sin in our lives so that we could live in a manner worthy of our king. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the glories of the gospel. We thank you for your perfect work on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from the penalty of sin, delivering us from the power of sin, working in us, O oh God, by your Spirit to will and to do your good pleasure. What an amazing gospel, Lord. What an amazing Lord you are. Can't thank you enough, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.